Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for attending this fourth Shema Manchester event. We're all delighted to see you here. And thank you very much to Rabbi Terrigan for coming up from London uh, considerable, considerably out of his way um, on the train this afternoon and um, coming back later uh, tonight for an early flight tomorrow morning to get back to Israel. I'd now like to introduce Rabbi Tarragon. I have a personal connection to Gush and therefore to Rabbi Tarragon. I've spent two very happy years there, despite them being during the Gulf War and a very, very heavy snowfall in the winter requiring helicopters to deliver essential supplies to us. Rabbi Moshe Tarragon has been a Ram at Yeshivat Haratzion in Gush since 1994. He has Samika from the Rabbi Isaac Achanan Theological Seminary a BA in Computer Science from Yeshiva College, and an MA in English Literature from City University. Rabbi Tarragon previously taught Gemara at Columbia University, lectured in Gemara and Tanakh at Yeshiva University, and served as an assistant rob at the Fifth Avenue Shul. In addition, Rabbi Tarragon currently teaches at the Stalake Avram Beis Medrash for women in Yeshiva of Yeshiva Haratzion and Middalos in Gush. He's the author of an internet share entitled Talmudic Methodology, with over 5,000 subscribers, and authors an audio share for Kimitsyon Teitzei Torah, the Torah podcast, entitled Redemptive Sketches. And you can also follow Rob Tarragon on Twitter. So I'm delighted to present to you Rabbi Tarragon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. And I want to thank Paul and Rebecca for hosting me so graciously. That vodka cake is a real winner, the real keeper. So a little plug for the vodka cake. Um, and to uh, all of you, such a warm welcome. I was at a uh, convention, a rabbinic convention, a few weeks ago, and the conservative rabbi was in America, and the reform rabbi came over to the orthodox rabbi and said, we've been waiting to ask you this question for years. It's just really troubling us. How come you speak so long? How come you speak so long Shabbos morning? Your sermon takes so long. It's been, it's been on the tip of our tongues. We've been trying to ask this question, never had the gumption, so the Orthodox rabbi turns to his conservative and reformed counterpart. He says, it's very simple. We all know we're rabbis. We're busy during the week, tending to the ill, healing the sick, visiting those who are in distress. When do you prepare a sermon? On the way to shul. So he turns to the reformed rabbi and says, you live a five-minute drive from shul, so your sermon's about five minutes. He turns to the conservative rabbi and says, well, you're allowed to drive to shul, but you're not allowed to park in shul. So it takes about five minutes to drive. You park a few blocks away. So your sermon is seven minutes long. The Orthodox rabbi says, Never, I have to walk the shawl through snow and sleep. It takes me 20 minutes, and my sermon's 20 minutes. I was preparing this year on the flight to Maris Yisrael. <laughs> I just wanted to think of a couple ideas to share with you. You tell me only two hours, right? Or three, or forget which one it was. Don't worry. Don't let the, step, don't let the text and the sources fool you. Maris Yisrael, we'll be having a good time. Um, the original title of this year... Um, do we cry crocodile tears? How do we generate mourning sadness for an event which happened thousands of years ago? That title, or at least the presumption of the title, has been rendered moot by what's happening in our land. I don't think any of us feel challenged in the least bit to identify with what we've lost, what we're struggling to recover. So as we take a journey through Jewish history trying to generate historical consciousness, Hopefully, the jumpstart and emotional engagement with the morning over the next couple of weeks, perhaps take even a few seconds to keep in mind 
all of our brethren who are suffering so miserably. And even today, there are 12 soldiers who were just announced who were killed. So I feel almost uncomfortable delivering a shear whose presumption is, how do we cry? I should sit down now because the answer is obvious. Every one of you tonight, including myself, should be in tears as we put our head on the pillow. So hopefully we'll, we'll still discuss some of the historical aspects, but there's no need to generate any extra motivation for why a Jew should cry today, any day that we struggle for the Jewish people, and certainly as Tisha B'Av looms. I also want to give a yashikach to uh, at least the three people who took me out. I'm sure there are others behind this organization, to Paul and to Jonathan and to Shimmy, for um, jump-starting this wonderful organization and for calling it Shema. It's another shear at a different time, but there's one pasuk that every single Jew across the world, no matter how dis- how affiliated, how disengaged, is one pasuk that our Kaddish Baruch Hu announced at Har Sinai, according to Chazal, Shema was recited first at Har Sinai. No matter where you are, whom you are, every single Jew in the world knows the pasuk Shema Yisrael. So Shema doesn't only mean listen, but it's our national anthem. And it's the anthem of so many great Jews that have gone to their death, supporting our belief system that continues to stabilize who we are today. So Shema is a pasuk of inclusion, it's a pasuk of historical consciousness. So Ritz Hashem, you should continue to create an organization that represents all of those values, to include as many people in the orbit of Torah, as many people in the orbit of Jewish history, and that one day we'll all stand together in Yushalayim, and we won't have to sing the pasuk, we'll be so, part, so much part of our consciousness. Getting back to our topic tonight, I wanted to discuss some of the transitions which occurred when the two Bate Mikdash, when the two temples were destroyed. What really happened? Why do we cry? How did we suffer? How did the world change? Twice, the two days, the same day, on which the temple was destroyed. The first thing I'd like to address are the universal and broader implications of our exile from Yushalayim. The book we'll read in a few weeks is titled The Book of Echa. The first word begins with the word Echa. The first sentence begins with the word Echa. It's a very powerful word. How could it happen? And that's not an inquisitive how, but a rhetorical how. Some events are so flabbergasting and so bewildering they can only be captured in disbelief. How could a chosen people suffer so miserably? How could a people betray so severely? How could history be derailed so dramatically? And we'll read and listen to that word Echa countless times. Moshe actually employed the word first when he discussed how could the Jews have revitalized after 200 years of backbreaking labor and become the people they were on the eve of their entry into Eretz Yisrael. And Yeshaya used the word when he saw the Jewish people degenerating morally in Yushalayim, Echa Haisal Amana. And then finally Yermia used the word to lament and to bemoan our fate. But the truth is, before Yermia employed that term, and before Yeshaya employed that term, and even before Moshe Rabbeinu employed the term, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself employed the term. Adam and Chava betray HaKadosh Baruch Hu's one instruction. They are lodged with one command to avoid the Eitzadas, the tree of knowledge. When they partake of that forbidden fruit, Hashem inquires as to where they're hiding, they're sequestering from Hashem. But the word he uses is not where are you, but he uses the word ayeka. Ayeka is spelled the exact same letters as echa. Ayeka. Aleph, yud, chaf, hey. According to Al Chazal, he wasn't just inquiring as to their whereabouts, he was bemoaning the fate. He was announcing his own echa. How could this happen that my creatures, 
have betrayed me and rebelled so rapidly, you will now be expelled. And when Yirmiyah repeats that word, he is simply invoking Hashem's original employment. HaKadosh Baruch Hu announced Eicha during the fall of man, and Yirmiyah repeated that same term when man fell again and exited Yerushalayim. And Chazal sensed this association between Hashem's bemoaning man's fall and Yirmiyah's bemoaning the Jewish nation's descent with a very interesting pasuk in Hosea. Just read a few of the sources. I'm not going to read every source. But if you take a look at Source Aleph, Part 1, the first line, the word is underlined, towards the end of the line, is a pasuk in Hosea describing our mutiny, describing our lack of fidelity. Source number Aleph, Part 1, Line 1, Vehema ki adam avru brit. Those Jewish people, the prophet is lamenting, they have betrayed my covenant, ke'adam. Of course we betrayed like a man, because we're human beings, we're not animals. What is that extra word, vehema ke'adam avru berit? According to Chazal, it associates the loss of Yerushalayim with the loss of paradise. That we lost a chance at perfection, the same way that Adam forfeited human future and human potential. So the cross-references between the loss of Yerushalayim and the loss of Gan Eden are twofold. The same lament, Hashem says Eicha about Adam, and Yirmiyah says Eicha about the Jewish people. And when the Navi, Hosea, Hosea, laments our fate, he says, they betrayed God like Adam. The same way Adam betrayed HaKadosh Baruch what is the agenda of our Chazal by creating this cross-link between the loss of Yerushalayim and the loss of Gan Eden? They seem to be two completely different experiences. One is universal, about mankind in general, before there was a Jewish people, before history even began, in the Garden of Eden. And one event is parochial, historical, national, about a unique nation with a particular historical arc and trajectory. The answer is as follows. And let me try to amplify the answer by sharing with you a story. Tomorrow, as you mentioned, I'll be getting on a plane early in the morning. Remember once spending about 18 hours in Chicago on a Sunday, teaching at a wedding that I had to ordain at, I had to attend the bar mitzvah, interviewing students. I caught a flight at, it must be 5 in the morning from New York, and my flight back from Chicago to New York was delayed. It was about 1 o'clock. I was in the airport in Chicago. And finally, they released the plane. So I make my way to the back of the plane, take my seat. I wish the person next to me had a pleasant flight. And I tell myself, finally, I have one and a half hours where no one knows my name. I'm total quiet and peace. I can just sit and learn. I've been working for 18 hours, serving Akadosh Baruch with every fiber that I can. Now I just have an hour and a half to learn. So I open the book, I open my Gemara, and the person next to me starts to make small talk. He says, what are you reading? He said, ancient Jewish law. I said, what's it called? He said, it's called the Talmud. Said, which topic are you studying? I was learning Mesechas Nida. <laughs> so I told him, ancient Jewish hygiene. <laughs> and then he said the five words I least wanted him to say. He could have said any five words in the dictionary. He could have randomized five words. Could have read five words in the phone book. 
He tells me, oh, don't worry, I'm a Jew. So go to him. I've worked for you for 18 hours at the Mishpah. Couldn't you sit me next to an Irish monk? A Buddhist priest, Karl Marx, an atheist, so on. Now I have to be Makari of this guy and talk to him. There goes my one and a half hours of silence and serenity. So I started to make some more talk with him. What does he do? He's a professor at MIT. I'm Rebbe at Gush. Already we have something in common. I gave him some tidbits and hints about teaching. I asked him if he was a shidduch. He didn't. So I tried to help him out. I took his number. It's not the shidduch crisis, you know, even in MIT. And of course, I didn't engage him theologically because I knew that any aggressive or assertiveness on my part would be easily rebuffed. But somewhere over the Appalachian Mountains, there's a mountain range that cuts right through Chicago, the Midwest, and the East. Somewhere over those mountains, he popped the question, Rabbi, I always wanted to know. Really? <laughs> Rabbi, I always wanted to know what makes Judaism different. I haven't heard that question before. That's a newbie. I don't have the time to share everything I told him, but one issue I told him was as follows. Judaism is the only religion... The only major religion whose endpoint does not constitute conversion or elimination of the other. Islam's endgame is conversion, converting the entire world to Islam, to be Muslims, or to eliminate the heathen, and many of them unfortunately are acting upon that. Make no mistake about it. Christian eschatology suggests the same. Everyone converts, everyone commits to Jesus, or is eliminated. Most Christians aren't acting upon it at this stage. We have absolutely no interest, no interest whatsoever in converting others to Judaism. Our end game is to usher in a utopia which the entire world recognizes the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that we've represented so courageously throughout generations, that our message of monotheism and morality is finally assimilated. And don't make any mistake, we're pretty close. From a historical standpoint, Christianity and Islam are absolute disasters because of the tragedies they've wrought on our people. But from a theological standpoint, they're welcome developments. Now, Rahman said this, Rabbi Moshe bin Nachman, after he debated Pablo Cristiani, wrote a very famous sefer, which he tried to revitalize the fallen Jewish spirit after that failed debate. And he told them they should be happy that Christianity has lifted Jewish ideas, corrupted them, but spread monotheism throughout our world. I don't have the time to be a missionary in South America. So the Christians took care of that for us. And none of us have the time to be missionaries in Southeast Asia. So the Muslims and the Christians converted a world of heathens and pagans and cannibals and bloodsuckers. They converted that world into rationalists, monotheists, moralists. When Mashiach comes, he's not going to have to conduct a complete overhaul. He'll have to rid Christianity of its vestigial paganism, and he'll have to rid Islam of its latent militantism. But aside from that, these are pretty true blends of monotheism. And I struggle with this because I live on the West Bank, and I'm a humanist, and I'm a universalist. And believe it or not, I truly see that every centimeter of Israel is ours and will be ours. I have to respect the rights of those who currently reside there, and I have to wrestle with that conundrum. How do I advance our national arc while still respecting the rights of others? But in my heart of hearts, I don't sense any clash between my parochial national agenda and my universalist sense of trying to improve this world. I'm trying to redeem a world on behalf of an entire world. And to be a chosen person is not to be bigoted, but to be chosen for mission on behalf of humanity. And our dream to 
to achieve Mashiach is not a selfish one, but one in which the entire world sees HaKadosh Baruch the way we see him, and lives the life of nobility, dignity that we share, and that we treasure. And there is absolutely no clash between a national arc and a universalist agenda. Because they dovetail. I'll put the mic down for a moment. Because the two arcs converge. When our national history regresses, humanity suffers. That day that we left Yerushalayim, humanity was plunged into a dark period. Because the Jews were no longer positioned and pivoted right in the, underneath the Shrina, as they should have been. And because the Mikdash ceased to operate, and the world was plunged into 200 years, or 2,000 years of moral wandering and moral confusion. So when we left Yerushalayim, it recalled first man, Adam and Eve, walking out of Ghanaian. The loss of Yerushalayim, the loss of Jewish mission, the loss of Jewish nationhood, of Jewish identity, of Jewish fulfillment, is not just a national tragedy, it is a universal catastrophe. It is a cosmological fall. Because when we are positioned in Yerushalayim, then Hashem's presence is less felt in this world, and humanity suffers. And as we mourn on Yerushalayim, and we mourn on Tisha B'av, we mourn the fall of our world, we also reaffirm to ourselves the convergence between our national and parochial ambitions and our universalistic care for an entire planet. Returning to Yerushalayim will be returning man to a state of perfection, as close as possible, on their terms. Not a state of perfection because they'll be Jewish. That's a self-driven state of perfection. A state of perfection on their terms. A life of morality, a life of monotheism, a life of sensitivity. So Chazal's twinning of these two events is meant to draw our attention to the universalist tones of our being in Yerushalayim and, of course, our exit from Yerushalayim. A lot of people are troubled by why the Israeli army is so adamant on maintaining a code of honor and a code of ethics. <coughs> unfortunately, at great risk and unfortunately at great loss to our own army. Any other country would have carpet bombed entire blocks of Gaza months ago, including this country and including the country that I was born in. But our license to the land of Israel is a factor or a function of our being chosen as a Kaddish Baruch people and we represent his will in this world. I'll talk about this a bit later. And we have to behave appropriately. And I don't know where the balance is between moral consideration for potential civilian casualties and ridding this area of homicidal murders. But that question resonates and haunts us deeply because we're not just fighting a military campaign. We are reasserting our historical role in our historical land. And that warrant for that historical role is as representatives of a Baruch Hu. We're only here for that reason. And if we represent His will in this world, we have to represent that will, not only in times of peace, but even more so in times of war. So it's absolutely crucial that we conduct ourselves. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a, a bleeding-heart liberal. I don't think that we should foster shalom excessively and danger our soldiers. But at least the dilemma is one which we face. My Talmud in face. I've spoken about it with them. Because we march into war on behalf of Jewish history. A few years ago, if you remember, there was the, the last time we went to Aza. Excuse me for straying, but you wanted me to talk a little bit about the events. There was a story circulating 
about a mysterious woman who appeared and warned soldiers of booby-trapped homes, bomb-trapped homes. And he said, don't go into that building. It's trapped with bombs. She's wearing a turban, very mysterious-looking, very ancient, Mideastern. Then she would disappear. And indeed, the house was booby-trapped. And then she reappeared mysteriously again. Don't go into that house. It's booby-trapped. And she disappeared. And finally, one soldier grabbed her. What, what's your name? Who are you? Who are you? She said, I'm Rachel Imenu. I'm your mother, Rachel. And I've come to, to warn you, to protect you. So I was speaking at that point, I think it was in Los Angeles. It sounds like a question you can only ask in Los Angeles. I said, Rabbi, Rabbi, did this story really happen? So I answered them as follows. I said, if you don't allow yourself to believe a story like this can happen, you're a skeptic. A Jew lives in empirical reality as well as a prophetic one. And we are in touch with the concrete reality which envelops us just as we are in touch with the invisible prophetic realm which we inhabit will one day inhabit in the afterlife, and we live in two realms, in two spheres. If you believe it happened simply because soldiers were telling the story, you're naive, because soldiers tell wonderful stories in foxholes. But the more important question to me, the only question, is not whether it happened or didn't happen. The more important takeaway is that's the story soldiers were telling. Because they had a sharp and clear sense that they were entering Aza, not to resolve some geopolitical dispute, not to rid the area of terrorists, but beyond that, because this is a battle on behalf of Jewish history, a battle which represented our own legacy, our grandparents who inhabited this land, and that Rachel was standing next to us, real or imagined, it's irrelevant, perception is reality, real or imagined, that our soldiers fight and continue to fight, recognizing this is not just a battle. They're fighting on behalf of everyone in this room, and every single Jew, whose courage and fortitude brought us to this point. So that's the first aspect which we mourn on Tishavah, the fall of man as affected or as impacted by the fall of Yerushalayim and the fall of Jewish people. The second aspect of our world which changed dramatically, and maybe indiscernibly, is our ability to dominate. I imagine, if every one of you takes a moment to think about the last six weeks of your life, you probably have found that your davening has changed irrevocably. If there's one change that the experience over the last six weeks has rendered that I think is irreversible, is we all know how we can daven. We discovered parts of ourselves, recesses of emotion, deeply nestled within our souls that we didn't know existed. Each in their own way, each in their own fashion, and I can certainly tell you that those feelings had an impact. I don't know how, I don't know what form of impact, but they had an impact. I believe some of that impact helped us the last two weeks avoiding the potential casualties of 2,000 rockets. I can't imagine that if our Phillips are ascending to heaven and our enemies are trying to use the heavens of Israel, if you believe that, the heavens of Israel to defeat us, that's impossible. There are certain things that can't be used against the Jewish people. One of my teachers, Rav Amitav, a man who changed my life to make sure they were headed up to the right, the, the right sources. So Rav Amital, who changed my life, my Rosh Hashiva, who is the art side, is coming up. This all happened to Noah, and, and uh, of course, all of your wonderful children got to meet him. I remember in 2003, 30 years after the Yom Kippur War, and the yeshiva lost eight students in the Yom Kippur War who went to their deaths from the base medrash of the yeshiva. Rav Lichtenstein, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, one of the Gedoli Hador, was standing at the door of the yeshiva 
as the boys filed out on Yom Kippur, knowing they were going to their death because the first wave of soldiers had to be thrown at the Egyptians as a wave just to deter and to delay them so that the reservists could gather and organize in the back. But Lichtenstein was standing at the door handing out rolls of toilet paper because these were students who would be tank commanders. And when you're in a tank, you can't exit the tank to relieve yourself. You have to take care of your needs in the tank. And they weren't aware of this, so he was handing out toilet paper as they walked by. Could you imagine receiving a roll of toilet paper from the government door? So 30 years after losing eight of his students, Ravamitov was talking to us on Yom Kippur, and he said, I'll tell you why we won the Yom Kippur War in ways which were absolutely miraculous. The Six-Day War was our initiated war. The 73 War, we were caught with our pants down, totally surprised. It's an incredible miracle. Because of the national mourning that surrounds that day, and every year in Israel, as the Yom Kippur War anniversary resurfaces, we engage in a collective moral inventory. How are we surprised? What happened? Can it happen again? An incredible miracles, because we could have lost it in 73. I don't have to tell you. And he said, the reason we won that war, he listed several reasons, what, but the reason he said, I remember he was crying tears. Tears were rolling down his cheeks. He says, the thought that the holiness of Yom Kippur could be exploited against the Jewish people was simply unacceptable in They thought that they dared to attempt to tool, to in, employ Yom Kippur against the Jewish people. A chutzpah. This is our day. This is our gift. You can't defeat us in Yom Kippur. Hashem wouldn't allow it. I feel the same thing about the missiles. Hashem gave human beings the earth, and Hashem inhabits the heavens. Hashemayim, Shemayim, Hashem, the earth, and the sun was made up. We have the right to pierce and to travel through the heavens as we do, as long as it's productive and constructive. But to use Hashem's realm against His people and to employ the heavens of Eretz Yisrael that have been literally saturated with tefillos for the last six weeks is inconceivable. Hashem couldn't allow it to happen. It's inconceivable that those heavens that have been receiving our tefillos, but sometimes our tefillos are effective and sometimes they're effective in ways we can't anticipate or explain. That changed the day we left Jerusalem. Let me share with you the following story. Source number base, part four towards the bottom. Let's start with source three and we'll move our way to source four. Amar Rabbi Elazar, source three. Miyom Shechara Beis HaMikdash. The day that the Mikdash was destroyed, Nin Alu Tvila. The gates of prayers were locked. And then Rabbi Lazar repeats himself, but perhaps a little bit more dramatically. Miyom Shechara Beis HaMikdash Nifsika Chomas Barzel Ben Yisrael Lavim Shemashamayim An iron curtain began to divide the Jewish people from HaKadosh Baruch When the Beis HaMikdash was standing, our encounter with HaKadosh Baruch was more intimate, was more direct, was less fraught with complication. It was spatial, geographic, ceremonious. It was national. Just think of your experiences of Yom Kippur, your associated memories of Yom Kippur, and contrast it with the experience of Yom Kippur in the Beis HaMikdash. Our Yom Kippurs typically evoke images of personal <coughs> confession, introspection, prayer, emotional energy. We huddle under our talus. We close our eyes and cry. We collapse into our sitter, into our machzar. In the days of the Beis HaMikdash, we gathered by the millions 
stood together, shoulder to shoulder, Jew to Jew, in the base Hamikdash, watching the Kohen Gadol offer sacrifices. It was a more confident moment. It was less uncertain. It was less angst-ridden. Standing with thousands, I, I mentioned before the Tfilis, I stood at the Kotel a few weeks ago with 25,000 Jews, literally crying tears. Every single person around me was crying, rivers of tears, looking up at the Kisei Akabu. I've never had that experience before. But it wasn't me. It wasn't an experience that centered upon my own identity and my own heart. I blended into thousands standing in front of a Kaddish Baruch. And then unfortunately, two weeks later, I blended in with 150,000, bearing three, but very powerful experiences. When you gather with that amount of Jewish people in those pitched, emotionally charged moments, either prayer or mourning, and you clearly are standing in front of God, not as an individual, shamed and mortified by your own failure, but as a collective people, proud and confident as to our achievements and to our sustained identity. Another interesting story, based on another passage. Rava, source number three, continuing that Gemara Brachos, line number four. Rava lo gazar tanisa biyoma de'eva. Rava refused to establish a tanis. In those days, fast days weren't established in the calendar. They were initiated, excuse me, in response to crisis. If there was a crisis, a fast day was initiated. So Rava refused to initiate a fast day if it was cloudy. Good thing Rabbi didn't live in England. <laughs> no fast days. Why did he refuse to initiate a fast day when it was cloudy, when it was overcast? He cited the source in Echa. Sakota, source 3, line 4. Sakosa be'anan lacha me'avart me'anan lach me'avart Hashem warns us. I will create a sukkah. I will create an enclosure with a cloud. I will enclose you with a cloud to prevent your tefillos from ascending. Sakosa be'anan lach me'avar tefillah. So if it was cloudy outside, Rava felt that that was too graphic a reminder of Hashem denying our tefillos. After we left Yerushalayim, Hashem began to deny some of our tefillos. And at the very least, He didn't want a visual imagery to rub it in, to, to, to underline that enveloped Anan. And what's so tragic about this Pasuk and about his imagery is that the cloud of glory becomes a cloud of buffering our tefillos. Remember in Tanakh, when a cloud descends, we're encountering Hashem. When the Rabbani Shalom speaks to our people, he descends in a cloud. Because, of course, the basic of mon- the basis of monotheism is that there's no image to describe God. Man can't envision him. Man can't visualize him. So the only image we can apply to Hashem is the absence of image, a cloud which distorts image. So when the cloud comes, we remind ourselves of Hashem's inscrutability, but at least viscerally, the cloud descending reminded the Jewish people that Hashem was present, that the Shekhinah was visiting them. And that cloud had become a sukkah, another irony, had become a sukkah to enclose the Jewish people and to blunt their prayers, to blunt their tefillahs. And here we find ourselves thousands of years, thousands of years, one of the great questions of Jewish history. How many people have said, and pray to our to return us to Eretz Yisrael, to return us to the Beis HaMikdash? The numbers are incalculable. The numbers simply defy imagination. And unfortunately, our prayers haven't been answered in the way we expect them to be answered. But prayers have an impact. 
prayers have influence. But that's why Tisha B'Av, and it's a very important, subtle but important distinction. Very often I find that unfortunately Tisha B'Av bleeds into Yom Kippur. What do I mean that Tisha B'Av bleeds into Yom Kippur? Tisha B'Av is not a day of tshuva. It's a day of mourning, of embracing the trauma and suffering through the experience. Think for a moment. I don't want to make it too personal, Hasashal. But think for a moment if you suffered a tremendous tragedy. Think of the worst tragedy you could suffer. What would it be like if your immediate response is, how can I rectify it? What can I do? Tragedy? You cry. You mourn. You wail. You crawl into a corner and you just absorb the shock and the the trauma. An immediate response, how can I do tshuva? What does this tell me about my life? It's so clinical. It's so sterile. It's cavalier. Indifferent to the suffering. You just suffer. And too quickly, because of our inability to mourn, we shift into tshuva mode. What chatayim can we possibly locate? Tisha is a day of Avelos, not Tshuva. And part of our Avelos is recognizing the inefficacy, too harsh a word, the limited effectiveness of our Tilos. And that's why on Tisha we scale down our Tilos. You'll notice on Tisha we don't recite Slichos. Slichos is a Tshuva prayer, no Slichos. We don't recite Yud Gimel Midos Arachamim. In a few months, Hashem, Hashem, Kiorachum, Mechanon, Erech, Abayim will be screaming to the heavens day and night. Not once. It's not a day of Slichos. It's not a day of Tefillah. It's not a day of Tshuva. We're just absorbing the loss and at least symbolically acknowledging that part of that loss is our inability to stand in front of a Kaddish Baruch the way we once did, nationally and spatially. If you pay attention in a few weeks, you'll notice that there's a Kaddish which is recited after Shemot Asrei. And that Kaddish is different from every other Kaddish because it includes one paragraph which is unique to the conclusion of Shemot Asrei. It's called the paragraph of Tiskabel. In Shemot in Kaddish, right after we finish davening, we recite a paragraph, Tiskabel Tzolosan Uvaosan Dechol Beis Yisrael. Accept our Tzolot. Tiskabel Tzoloton. Accept our Tzolot. Guess which day of year we don't recite that paragraph. Because reciting the paragraph would be to mar or tarnish the goal, the agenda of Tisha B'av, is to accept our loss, to absorb it, to suffer the absence, rather than reflexively or instinctively, how can I change? It's a very thin line. Perhaps the second part of Tisha B'av, as I'll discuss a bit later, allows more of a tshuva consciousness. But the night of Tisha B'av is not Yom Kippur, it's not a night of Slichos, it's simply absorbing our loss. This is the day that Tfilos became so much more complicated. My son is very close with the two of the three boys who were killed a few weeks ago. He goes to the same school. He's in their grade. So we became close to the experience. We suffered along with him and him. We visited the families. In my opinion, the mother, one of the mothers and all the mothers, which is absolutely outstanding, we all just saw three women simply raise the dignity and discourse of what it means to be a Jewish mother. So I, I, I'm crying even thinking about their image. 
And one of the mothers, Nathalie Frankel, is a Ronald Abraham's mother, Rachel, did something incredible. Incredible. I think her merits in many fronts are clearly accelerating our national march to Yushalayim. Let me take you back about eight years ago. Eight years ago, we relocated 8,000 Jews from Aza, the Sharon plant, in the summer, right around now. And some rabbis in our community issued a very, very dangerous and statement which ultimately boomeranged. They announced it's not going to happen. In Hebrew, it was called Hayo Lotihia. Hashem can't let this happen. He won't let this happen. He guaranteed, they were guaranteed it wouldn't happen. So troubled by this statement. 70 years after the Holocaust, if Hashem can allow the Holocaust to happen, He can allow 8,000 Jews to be relocated by their own. I'm not, this isn't a political statement. Even if you feel it's the worst catastrophe in the history of the state of Israel. And you know what happened? The day of the expulsion, thousands of children in our community woke up with a theological crisis. Because we're guaranteed the divine will, and that guarantee proved to be fraudulent. There are children today in Israel that are 24 and 25 and 26 that are struggling mightily with their religion and their belief system, in part because of that experience. And this woman spared thousands of children. She was at the Kotel for one of the prayer services during the period we thought the children were still alive, and we hoped they were still alive. And she issued a very terse but powerful statement to kids. She said it, I think it was directed, I don't remember what age group, but figure 12, 13-year-olds, so she spoke in their language. She told the children, let's daven and let's hope. But she reminded them, Hashem does not work for us. I think her language was, He is not our employee. We daven, He has the right to listen, not to listen, to apply our tefillos to some other credit, to some other agenda. Because she foresaw the potential for the experience to go unresolved or to end up as tragically as it did. And we daven, we pray, basic to a Jewish heart. That's why we're here, without less so many discriminatory, so much persecution, because we pray, because we connect to our Kodesh Baruch But unfortunately, it was very different. Unfortunately, we once had the opportunity to ascend to Yerushalayim, gather collectively in the courtyard of the base of Mikdash, see miracles before our eyes, feel the palpable presence, and now we're wandering in the darkness, wandering in the loneliness. And the sad part is, sometimes we don't even, we're not even sad that we've lost it. The greatest fall is to fall so far you forget you're falling. <clears throat> to live in a prison whose bars are invisible. Sometimes people ask me, I don't particularly feel any loss on Tishabah, but I live a very comfortable life. Financial support, financial affluence, influence, family, Western civilization, freedom of movement, freedom of operation, Jewish pride, Torah. What should I cry? I think that was the title. Do we cry crocodile tears? I find myself, and I struggle with this myself also, if you can't cry for the mikdash, cry for yourself. Cry for a personality that can't even yearn for the mikdash because we've fallen so far. If I could put a pill on the table... And that pill would magically render your consciousness into that which sorely misses Yerushalayim and sorely recognizes the deficiency of our world and sorely yearns and longs for a different reality. Would you take that pill? Imagine you would. So we're human beings and we're caught in the fabric of our day-to-day. So if you can't cry, 
honestly and authentically for a world that doesn't draw you, at least cry for having lost the appetite for that world and being so far fallen, as we all are, that we sometimes have to remind ourselves that we're fallen. That's the second change which was wrought on the day of Tishaba. Not just the loss of paradise at a universal level, but the loss of the ability to pray. Number three, and in no particular order, I want to skip for a moment to source number dollar. I mentioned before my Rebbe Ravamita. I don't know how many of you actually, and I know Sharon and Warren's children probably told stories, some of them, right? The older children probably had. Very special person. Taught us to think fresh, not just to think in stale conventions. One of my favorite stories is he once told us, just to show you how he forced us to turn our heads on a pivot and think about things from fresh angles. He once told us, you know how people say, at first I tried to change the world. Then I realized that was too difficult, so I tried to change my family. Then I realized that was too difficult, so I just resigned myself to changing myself. So Ramitai used to tell us in his inimitable fashion, that's not the way it goes. That was his way of dismissing stale conventional thought. You know what really happens? First people try to change themselves. When that's too difficult, they try to change their families. When that's too difficult, then they try to change the world. That's really the way it works. We used to call it in yeshiva, if on the stopper. If you see it from the reverse angle, then you're hitting the truth. As we get caught in pre-established patterns of thinking, you've got to turn your head sometimes to see the truth. One of the things he taught me was as follows. I mentioned to Shimmy and to Paul and Jonathan at dinner, I come from a Haredi background. I was schooled in the Haredi world till 12th grade. I have a very powerful memory when we used to attend sporting events or museums or public areas. We were a lesson before the trip. Act appropriately. Don't scream. Don't be wild. We'll be a Chil Hashem. Chil Hashem. My image of Chil Hashem was causing Gentiles to disrespect Jews and Judaism by my behavior. That was my world of Chil Hashem. And then Rav Amitel taught us it's a whole different playing field of Chil Hashem. We are HaKadosh Baruch Hu's people. His presence in this world is represented by us. And as the Jewish people at Nas, not just how we act in a museum, but as our people rise and succeed, His presence augments. And as we decline and suffer, His presence regresses. And that's the Chil Hashem. By hitching Himself to our people, His fate in this world, Hashem is universal, Hashem is infinite, but in this world, His presence is marked by our nation and its ark and its triumph and its failures and its suffering. At all levels. So tell us, why were, were we redeemed in 1948? Did we deserve it? Who knows? I can't stand here and tell you that we are more deserving than the generation of the Hassan Sofer or the generation of Rabbi Akiva or the generation of the Rambam. But one thing I can tell you, that in 1940, the single greatest Chilol Hashem was perpetrated since the destruction of the Temple. Because throughout history, all the pogroms and all the inquisitions and all the expulsions, 
don't even begin to match up to the systematic elimination, the attempt to systematically eliminate the Jews in the streets of Europe. In two and a half weeks, we'll gather, we'll sit on the floor, and we'll bemoan the fate of the three Franco-German towns which were pulverized during the Crusades, the First Crusade in 1096. Mines, worms, and spires. Magnets, excuse me. 1096, the Crusaders marched through Franco-Germany, and they eliminated these towns. And there were three kinos, Acharishim, Menevet Abera, Esnavi Does anyone know historically how many Jews were murdered in that spring of 1096? It was savage, it was brutal. How many Jews actually lost their lives? Uppermost accounts. Max. Maybe two, three thousand. Maybe. We don't tolerate any Jewish loss, or any loss for that matter. But if we recite three kinos on Tisha B'Av for two thousand people, how many kinos must we recite for six million people? It's endless. And a chilol Hashem of that magnitude required some response. I can't. One thing he taught us was never to wrap your head around the Holocaust. It's too big for human comprehension. It defies the human imagination. So those who trade off the state of Israel for the Holocaust, it's not morally repugnant. It repugnant. It's simply intellectually dishonest because the Holocaust is too large an event to be processed by the human cognitive experience. It's too large. It's too beyond us. But think of the plight of the Jewish people in 1945 and think of where we are now. Think of the country we've assembled in 67 years. Think of the pride. I'll talk about this a bit later. Unfortunately, the verbal assaults we're suffering, I'll talk about this later in the media, but in general, democracy, the two proudest moments for me the last five years in Israel, I was so proud to be an Israeli citizen, was when Moshe Katsav a former prime minister was indicted for rape. The second one, I forgot, there's only too many, unfortunately. The other moment, who else was arrested recently? All of this was before. National figure. Why am I so proud? Because what happens in Egypt and in Syria and in Iran when police chiefs rape women? as they do every 2.3 seconds in Egypt, or when people's rights are abused, nothing. Swept under the carpet. And we've built a democracy durable enough to indict a president. And a president has a hot jobs and streams of influences. And that's a sturdy democracy. And we're to be proud of the democracy we've established. Again, one other event reminded me of how firm our fledgling democracy has proven to be. That a small country surrounded by homicidal maniacs gathering 52 different dialects without any natural resources fissured by different cross-sections of Ashkenazi and Sephardi and Dati and non-Dati fighting successive wars, and look at the country we built. <clears throat> we represent the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in this world is so much more palpable than it was 70 years ago. Unfortunately, that day, which we lost to Yishalayim, the heavens went dark, and a Kaddish Baruch Hu disappear behind the veil. That's what a Chilal Hashem is. A Chilal Hashem is not a Jew speaking too loud in a museum. That's a Shandar. And maybe our parents were obsessed with the Shandar effect. 
Achil Hashem is how are we faring as a people, and how are we representing our Kodesh Baruch in our world? And that's what he taught us. To live your life as part of that divine narrative and to live your life as part of the people with a larger narrative at stake. So we'll read Emirz Hashem in Eicha, source number Dalit. We'll read in source number Dalit, part two, the bolded sentence towards the end. Hey, Shiv Achor Yemino, Mibne Oyev. Yermia laments that Hashem took his right hand and tied it behind his back because of the enemy. That, of course, is a metaphor. Hashem doesn't have a hand. What does it mean? Hashem tied his hand behind his back. So Chazal amplified this image. Source number three. I'm just skipping to the third line. I share your suffering. My children are suffering. And I am indulging. Hashem says, Our faith represents HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence in this world. So that day was not just a national tragedy. It didn't just change the dynamics of our entire planet and all of humanity. And it didn't just block Tefillah from ascending. But it's a Chilol Hashem. And a Jew cries when there's a Chilol Hashem. Mentioned before the Pasuk of Shema. In two and a half weeks, we'll read about the ten martyrs. And Rabbi Akiva was really the first person to recite Shema Yisrael on the way to his death. How many Jews have been brave enough throughout history to recite that Pasuk when that opportunity was thrust upon them? We don't have a death wish. We don't seek martyrdom. But when it's thrust upon us, we don't flinch. We don't flee. Every Arab Yom Kippur, I visit the graves. I make my rounds in Haram Nuchot. Visit my family's graves. Visit, uh, I should mention it, since I'm in this country, I visit the grave of Yoni Jesner. I probably will still remember. He was a student of mine. He was killed in a terror incident from Scotland. Then I visit the graves of a family of, Hall, of Dutch immigrants. It's a very hard name to pronounce. Schwitzspuller. Because a friend of mine told me the following story. This family was caught in a Sabara's pizza shop, a bombing, Thursday afternoon. And a friend of mine's daughter was caught in that same bombing. She survived Baruch Hashem. And he was with her in the hospital Friday night, reviewing the Parsha. His 14-year-old daughter. She kept asking, Abba, Abba, what happened to that family? What happened to that family? And the father didn't want to expose her to additional suffering. He was a kid, important. Read more, read the next pasta. Finally, she was persistent. Abba, what happened to that family? What happened to that family? Why must you know? She says, Abba, because I was lying in the pizza shop, bleeding, and I saw a little boy next to me dying. And I heard him call out to his father, Abba, Abba, help me, I need you, I need you, I'm, I'm in pain, I'm hurt. And I heard and saw the father turn to his son and say, I can't help you, I'm in flames, I'm burning. But I want you to hold my arm, hold my hand as tightly as possible, reach out, grab my hand, and let's recite Shema together. And ascend to Shemayim together. 
wasn't just Rabbi Akiva who recited Shema on their way to Shemayim. I imagine there were a few Shema Yisraels, more than a few recited this past weekend, this morning in Eretz Yisrael. It's a big schuss to be part of an organization about that Pesach. That's why we live. We are put onto this planet to represent the Kodesh Marathon, to represent the type of lifestyle that's shaped in his image, a lifestyle of dignity, a lifestyle of vision, of principle, of care, of respect, and to represent him. And if we're called upon to represent him with our death, then we don't gladly accept that mission, but we courageously accept that responsibility. So when a Chilol Hashem of the magnitude of the second base Hamikdash or a Chilol Hashem of the magnitude of the Holocaust occurs, our lives have collapsed. Our mission is failing. Our purpose in this world is being reversed. Are we able to feel that sadness? Are we able to lock into that cycle of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence and recognize how much of a hit it absorbed on Tisha Remember, in 1996, after Rabin was assassinated, Rav Amital was invited to become a minister of the then Perez-led government. Perez succeeded Rabin. And he accepted the invitation, much to the bewilderment of most of the national religious community. Perez? Oslo? Mr. Oslo? Mr. Peace-lover? Left-wing government? Anti-religious? And I remember he told us why he decided to join the government. He said, first of all, he believed that they were about to draw the lines and draw the maps, and he wanted to try to save as much of the territories as he could from within the government. But he also said, I've lived through the Holocaust, and I've lived through the Chil Hashem of the Holocaust. I never thought I'd see an equal, equivalent Chil Hashem. But sadly, that a boy educated in our system, this boy Yigal Amir, this man, was educated in our yeshivas. He went to yeshivas Kambiyat, and part of the Hester movement. That he would assassinate a head of state that caused him such a chilol Hashem. I have to do something to restore the pride of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. That a Rashi yeshiva could be invited to be a minister in a government. That's the kiddush Hashem. He thought it was. He was not interested in politics. He wasn't a sloganeer. He wasn't interested in positions of honor. The last thing he could care about was honor. But he felt that he had to restore Kiddush Hashem. That's part of what happened the day of Tisha B'av. The descent of Hashem Shekhinah. The Gemara tells us a beautiful story. Not about Rabbi Akiva, but about a, a child, a girl. Amarish Lakish, source number Dalit 1, the top of the last, top of the second to last page, front side. Maisa Isha Achas Safnas Bas Peniel Shema. The girl named Safnas. Shakol Tzofin Biyofya. Her name was Safnas. Because the word litzvot means to look. Some of you have visited Svat. Svat used to be a lookout tower, so that's why it's called Svat, because it looked out over the north. So her name was Tzafnas because she was so pretty. One of Sarah's nicknames was Yiska. Everyone looked at her and was amazed at how beautiful she was. So this girl was called Tzafnas. She was the daughter of a Koyangadol. She was captured. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were captured in the first base of Mikdash. And in the second as well. This is the second base of Mikdash after it was destroyed. And she was basically sodomized the entire night. Lamachar, she was wrapped in seven layers of clothing and dragged out to the market to be sold as a slave or as a sex slave. And uh, the, her master was approached by a potential buyer. And he said, I'm not buying this woman until I see the goods. 
So one by one, her layers were removed. And she had one last layer on her body, source number one, line number five. She refused to allow that layer to be removed, and she just rolled in the dust. She cried out, If you don't have mercy on us, at least have compassion for your name. Look at what's happening to us and how it's reflecting poorly on you. Could you imagine a girl screaming to the heavens, So maybe this is a nice voice for us to introduce into our tefillahs for the next two weeks. If for whatever reason, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in addition to the Rahmanas you've showed our people, what about Kedush Hashim Chagadol? What about hastening our end? What about clarifying the moral confusion that swirls in our midst between the assaults and the verbal assaults, homicide, child murderers, and pity you because you're exposed to it on a daily basis. Talk about this a bit later, maybe. I want to discuss in closing What's our time frame? About 20 minutes. I want to discuss in closing two transformations which were tragic but continue to propel Jewish history. Very interesting um, change occurs on Tishabab at around Chatzos. So we always want to know when Chatzos is because as Chatzos approaches, so we are able to finally sit down in our chairs. And the Avelis becomes a bit light, lighter, we start preparing the break meal, and we start to have shiurim. Why does the Avelis top off or moderate at Chatzos? Anyone know? Because that's when the Beis Hamikdash was lit. That's when the Beis Hamikdash became engulfed in flames. It's counterintuitive. The moment the Beis Hamikdash was burnt, our Avelis should augment, our Avelis should accelerate. Magnify, and yet we reduce the events. The answer is as follows: There's a big debate in heaven. These were disloyal people. Don't glorify the past. We have a tendency to glorify the past. Everyone who lived before us was righteous, and we're all fallen. Not true. The record of the first base on Mikdash was pretty pitiful, pretty pathetic, wanton idolatry, lustful adultery. Vicious murder, rampant, not isolated cases. Second base of Mikdash was more subtle. In Shamayim, Akarish Baruch Hu was considering ending the experiment. It was a great experiment. His first round of human history tried to expose humanity in general to his presence, but after 2,000 years of that failure, moral corruption, theological confusion, he selected one people to be his ambassadors, but those people couldn't follow the straight and narrow. So perhaps they should be eliminated, perhaps a different nation should be chosen. Sound familiar? Jewish people are no longer chosen, God chooses a different people, a new Messiah. He was actually considering that. And there were voices in heaven that lodged that possibility. But there was a covenant that Kaddish Baruch was signed with our Avos and Imos. And a covenant is not an oath, a covenant is not a pledge of allegiance, a covenant is a covenant. You're committed. But they sinned. They betrayed me. How do I respond to that? In heaven, there's no rounding off of edges, of numbers. There's no ignoring reality. Hashem made the following decision. 
I'm going to stir up my people and I'll take my building. I'll repossess. I won't imprison the default, I'll just repossess the building. The fact that the building was set on fire was a signal from a British powerful. I choose my people. I love you. I'll never betray you. I'll never abandon you. But in response to your failures, I'll repossess your building until you deserve it again. That's why that moment, 12 o'clock, we don't really smile because it's Tishabah, but I encourage all of you to have a little smirk, a little smile, because we're proud to be a Jew as part of an everlasting path. We'll take a look at part number Gimel. That's precisely why, as ironic as it sounds, this is a perplexing statement. Source number three, the underlying part, Kara Alai Moed. Tishabab is called a Yantif. Kara Alai Moed. It's a Yantif? Yermia calls it a Yantif? Kara Alai Moed. Well, the word Moed could be a very vague reference not to a Yantif, but to an important or solemn day. But take a look at source number four. It's really a Yantif, the Shoharar of Paskins. Ain Omer Tachnon, the Tishabab. Don't say Tachnon Tishabab because it's a Moed. What could be celebratory about Tishabab? Because of this Pasik, source number five. Kila Hashem is Hamaso. Source five is an Echa Hashem poured forth all of his wrath. Shafach Charonapal. He spilled his ire. Vayatzes Eish. Not be Israel. He didn't set the Jewish people on fire. Vayat says, Eish B'Tzion, Vatochal Yisodosah. And the foundations of the Beis HaMikdash were consumed in fire. I don't have enough time, but if you take a look at the Medrash, just paraphrase very quickly, source number six. Mizmor Ali Asaf, to Parakin Tehillim, Asaf sang a song. What was the song? Bo Goyim Ben Foreign nations have invaded your mikdash. That's a song. That's a lament. Source number six, line two. Mizmar? It's not a song. It's a cry. It's a wail. It's a moan. Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Kach Amrul Asaf. Line number five, source six. Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Pichrevis Mikdashro, Vyatayashiv, Mizamer. Shem destroyed the base of mikdash and you're playing an instrument. Amal and Lakachani Mizamer. Why am I thrilled? Because Hashem took out His wrath on Eitzim Bavan. Important Eitzim Bavan. Important sticks and stones, but yet replaceable. Wood, ramparts, stone foundations. That's what a covenant is. Covenant is commitment. There are times in our history in which we do not deserve Hashem's love and commitment. We acted out, we betrayed Him, and He adhered to that breast. And the same is true, the corollary. Here, Shem is my, of course, it's a part of it. I maybe want to record this. Okay, here's the part that will get you in trouble. You, you baited me, so. If there were times that HaKadosh Baruch Hu loved us even though we didn't deserve it, then equally true, there are times we have to love Hashem even though He doesn't deserve it. And what do I mean He doesn't deserve it? Of course, the Kodesh Baruch deserves our love, but at least in ways that we can process. I can't imagine 
why we can imagine that he deserves an end to the Holocaust. Of course, he has his, his ways and his chachma that we can't understand. But there are times in our history we just don't understand. We can't imagine. We can't make sense. We can't process. But those moments we remind ourselves that's what a bris is. A bris is a covenant. All of us in Baruch Hashem have wonderful marriages. Know that that's what marriage is. It's a covenant. We love our spouses, but in other times we love them less. But we're equally committed to them. We're committed to that partnership. By the way, I think that young people they have a harder time understanding that their marriages are so fraught with challenge. Because it's a covenant, it's a commitment to be partners, to join together. Of course, you hope that every minute will be full of rapture and love and enchantment, but we're human beings. But you commit. And that commitment was concretized on Tisha, of all days, Tisha, at our lowest, at our Nadir. The lowest moment in our national history. Akadosh Baruch was smiling kindly on us and venting his anger on our homes. In fact, as I'll tell us, that's why the first Mikdash was referred to as a Mishkan. Mishkan phonetically can be converted into Mashkon. A Mashkon is a foreclosure. Hashem already prophesied these buildings that you erect, that I reside in, they'll be collaterals. I'll take them instead of punishing you. But remember, any person who takes a collateral expects to come back and once again reestablish the financial relationship. It's not just the punishment, it's the collateral. And we're waiting for the bonus home to return our collateral and renew our vows and renew our relationship. So ironically, it was a day in which our relationship with our Kurdish Barfu was secured. In many respects, I mean, there's not a share about, about Purim. But Haman's challenge was right after the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. So when you think of Tishabab, don't forget that Haman occurred 50 years later, Purim. What was Haman thinking? What was he thinking? What was his thought pattern? He was a student of history. He knew we were the people of God. He saw what happened to Bilam. He saw what happened to Sachera. He saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Only 10 or 20 years earlier. Haman was the first Christian. Not religiously. He was a Zoroastrian. But historically, he was the first person to lodge the following claim. You were a chosen people. But you abdicated it. And you lost your mikdash. And now you're just amongst others. Yeshno am echad, mefuzar mefarad. Finish the puzzle. Mefuzar mefarad. Now you're beinamim. You're no longer chosen. Here's my chance. And Purim was another moment in which that covenant was reestablished. Shem reminded us where you are, I am. Every day we recite this in davening, we pray for your redemption. We pray for Hashem's, not Hashem's redemption, it's our redemption. We're waiting for you to be redeemed by Kaddish Baruch. What happens to us, reflects upon you. The final element that changed that day, that's somewhat welcome, but only if it's taken proper proportion, is a contraction of the religious experience, an important contraction. The Gemara says in Rachas, source number A, part 4. Hainu <laughs> 
Ela Arba Amos Shel Halacha Bilvad. To be a Jew used to be about nation, identity, land, language, culture, politics, society, the whole gamut. Judaism is not just contained to a room and to a book. It's a holistic, suffusing experience. And we lost them. But one thing remained. And that's my second plane story of the night. Got on a plane one night, about five, six years ago, to Toronto. This was during the period of the swine flu epidemic. Remember? This is how people got on the plane during those periods. You didn't get too near anyone. You didn't look at anyone. You didn't talk to anyone. God forbid you should spread the swine flu. So everyone was very quiet on the plane ride. No one looked. No one talked. It was a small plane, about 70 people living in isolation, solitary confinement. Plane got delayed. And as the plane's flying, I see these three young men sitting in the front row with their ski, with their baseball hats on, clearly Orthodox Jews trying to conceal their Judaism. <laughs> you know, the face like an accountant, round glasses. That's what I love when I go to Europe. I love watching people try to <laughs> try to make believe. <laughs> oh, I mean, denim skirts are now in fashion. <laughs> it must be. Oh, it's now fashionable to wear a kitchen towel on your head. Must be very laughable. Okay, obviously, if you have to, you have to for uh, you know, for safety purposes. But I'm not, I'm not a big fan. So that's uh, a different story. So I'm on the plane, and we land late in Toronto. It's one of those outboard planes where you receive your luggage on the tarmac. So we landed at 1:40 in the morning, and it was clear the planes well, we had to stay overnight. All of a sudden, we all gather together with our cell phones, start changing numbers. Here's where the Scotia food, here's where the minion, you need a place to stay. People were looking at us like we were crazy. You guys know each other? You didn't sit together. We were separate on the table, sitting there quietly waiting, locked in their own world. Here we were, people hadn't met each other. We had a secret language. What was our secret language? Talk. We need a minion. We need a kosher food. It's a great miracle of Jewish history. The great miracle of Jewish history is that we've wandered through the wilderness of history, been scattered across this globe. We haven't shared the same climate, dialect, no flag, no currency, no land, no army. We speak in different languages. I can hardly understand the waitress tonight. I'm trying to make a sense of the Manchurian accent. I'm trying my best. I come from Brooklyn. Please. <laughs> but I walk in here, and within minutes, we're the same people. We share the same experience. Where were we Friday night? Same Kala, same Hagafen, same Shalom Aleichem, same Abdullah. It's amazing. It's a secret language. That's the viscosity that has bonded Jews who have lost all of those national, historical elements of identity. Baruch Hashem. Obviously, everyone in this room feels that we're now at a stage in which, in addition to our Torah experience, now we have the great privilege, as well as the responsibility, to stretch and flex our Jewish identity into all those niches which we lost, culture and language, state building. 
Remember two, three years ago in Israel when we suffered the terrible fire up north. Remember the Carmel fire? And 50 firemen burned. Remember an old Jew in Yishalayim crying. How could those 50 do? And he looked at me with those teary eyes and he said, at least there are firemen. We don't have the luxury in Israel to allow, I guess in Brooklyn, the Irish people in the firemen. I don't know who runs the fire department here in Manchester. We don't have that luxury of Jewish firemen and Jewish policemen and Jewish soldiers. Do you know what would happen if a Jewish soldier walked into this room and your grandmother could see him? She would start crying now. Wouldn't stop until Yom Kippur. A Jewish soldier? A Jewish army? You know what happened July 21st, 1814, and July 21st, 1614, and July 21st, 1414. They were still recovering from Easter pogroms. They were still walking around dangling limbs and bandage heads and making their way through old ghettos, preparing for the Christmas pogroms. And no one cared. And no one defended us. Now, Baruch Hashem, we have our army. But let's not forget the gray preservative of Jewish history. Our Torah, our common language. It's an amazing, amazing concept. As someone that travels all over, you walk into a community, you have a home. You have a family. You're not stuck in some motel with strangers. If only the guy knew why we're so successful at business. It's one thing. It's called Kiddush. We get together and we make business deals. Because business is based on trust. Oh, you're selling shmatas. I have a friend who needs shmatas. And you trust me not to betray you. Nishtar Shabbos, correct, of course. <laughs> the great secret of Jerusalem. Beautiful medrash. Source number... The last source we'll quote tonight. Source number two, part A. There's so many beautiful midrash, and this has to be one of my favorite ones. Lemachar, kishiyam oketz hagula. When we are finally assembled in Yerushalayim, we're so close. When we finally get there, Omer Lamakodesh Baruch Hu Yisrael, Hashem will tell the Jewish people, Bini, Ani Tamamikem, I am shocked. Hechim Tamtenli, Kolosim Hashem. How did you wait for me all these years? How did you believe in me? I threw everything at you, including the kitchen sink. Pogroms and riots, and I threw it all at you. You suffered so miserably. When I see a Jew who isn't religious today, I don't feel contempt. I don't feel shame, I don't feel anger, I don't feel resentment. I totally and perfectly understand why a Jew would not be religious, because history has beaten their Judaism out of them. How much can they take? Another program, another Inquisition, another Holocaust, more suffering. To be religious at the end point of history, you have to be crazy. I like being crazy. It suits everyone in this room very well. Because we're crazy in love. So Hashem is shocked. How? How? So the Jewish people answer with the innocence of the school child. Hey, moment, Lafon of Rabbanu Shalom. 
if not for the Torah, Kvar Abadimah would be lost. But you gave us the Torah. He told us you'd be back. What's the big deal? Anyone know who the successor to Theodore Herzl was? Max Nordau. Every city in Yushalayim has, of course, the major artery. Herzl Street has a Nordau Street. Max Nordau was a very assimilated Jew. married a Christian. Big controversy whether to allow him to be involved in the Zionist Congress. What turned Max Nordau? He was a medical doctor in Paris around the turn of the century. One day, a Hasidisha family comes running in with their sick 11-year-old daughter. And they say, Dr. Nordau, Dr. Nordau, your daughter is deathly ill. Can you save her? Can you rescue her? Can you heal her? Of course. He spends a year researching medicines, and he heals miraculously this 11-year-old girl. At the end of the year, the parents turn and thank you for saving our child. Give us a bill. I'm going to tell you. Remember my bubby always told me. My bubby was a Rebbitzin's Rebbitzin. Tell me, Meshala, she called me. Two people you always pay. The caterer and the doctor. <laughs> uh, I said, from Brooklyn, I stiff a lot of people, but not the caterer and not the doctor. Meshala, it's like my Bubby's wisdom. I always want to pay the doctor. He starts laughing. I know where you live. In Paris, those days, it was very segregated. The enlightened, non-Orthodox, non-religious Jews lived in the posh sections of town. North Manchester is out. Tell me out here. I don't say shrubbery then. So, the Latin part of town and the traditional religious Jews, Hasidic uh, Jews, lived in the rundown section. He left. I know where you're from. I know you're from that section of town. And in your lifetime, you won't earn enough money to afford even one visit, let alone a year, visits and therapies and research. It's fine. It's free. My pleasure. Now we have to repay you, Dr. Nona. We have to repay you. She turns to this little girl and says, Okay, kiss me on the cheek and show your gratitude. That'll be my payment. She starts blushing. I just became bat mitzvah, and my rabbis told me in Beis Yaakov I should no longer be kissing gentlemen on the cheek. <laughs> okay. He asked her, tell me what you studied today in Beis Yaakov. That will be my payment. Whereas Parshas Vayichai Yaakov tells his children, asking them to pour his body back to Israel for burial, he apologizes for not burying Rachel in Eretz Israel. At least literally, because the body would decompose, so he had to bury Rachel on the roadside. But the real reason Yaakov buries Rachel on the roadside, Rashi tells us, is because he prophesizes about the Jews being forced out of Yerushalayim. Marching out in chains, Nebuchadnezzar ordered his troops to march amongst the columns of Jews and not to let them cry. He told them, if you see someone crying, decapitate him. Because if they cry, he will listen. If he listens, we're lost. So, could you imagine losing your parents, your relatives, your children, and not being allowed to cry? And we were only allowed to cry when we reached Babel and the deed was done, which is why we recite in Tehillim, Al-Naharos Babel, on the waters of Babel, Sham Yashavnu Gam Bachinu. That's when we were first allowed to cry. And the Jews would stop by the roadside and pray to their avos, and one by one Hashem would quiet them in heaven. Don't ask, don't challenge, you don't know, you can't appreciate, but there's one voice that day in heaven which couldn't be stilled. And that was the voice of Rachel, because of Rachel's heroism in stepping aside for her sister Leah. Hashem had to answer Rachel, and his answer to Rachel was, Many wipe your eyes from tears. That famous phrase, was first stated by Hashem to Rachel, as Yirmiya records. So that is what this little girl told Max Nordau she learned in grade school that day. That's why Rachel is buried on the roadside. So Dr. Nordau turns to this little girl and says, Tell me, do you really believe this is going to happen? 
you've lived in Paris your whole life, your father lived in Paris his whole life, his father lived in Paris his whole life, your grandfather, your great, Jews haven't been in Palestine for 1800 years, and you think you're going to go back in Rachel? So this 12-year-old girl looks up at Max Nordau and says, of course I believe it says it in Rashi, it's Teshet in Rashi. So Dr. Nordau says, if a 12-year-old girl, the love between this people and this land is so deep that 12-year-old girls in Paris feel it intuitively, I want to be part of it. Takes off the stethoscope, hangs it on the wall, and joins Shua's history. I think about that story when I read this message. Ken tells us in the end of the days, how did you wait for me? Are you crazy? How did you maintain that faith? And we say, what do you mean? You told us you'd come. You gave us the Torah. You gave us that ability. Those are five of the shifts which occurred when the base of Mekish was destroyed. Three of them were absolutely tragic on a grand scale. Two of them were tragedies, were tragedies which propelled Jewish history forward. Humanity fell because the Jewish mission wasn't aborted, but was thwarted and was deferred. Leaving Yerushalayim is tantamount to leaving Eden. Second of all, Philos became an entirely different experience. Space, encounter, rendezvous, interaction, in a very real sense, was replaced by internal prayer, solitude, a very complicated attempt for our Tfilos to penetrate seven heavens. There are seven Rakios, our Tfilos better be sincere, they are meant to penetrate those seven heavens. It used to be easier. Finally, the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu regressed because the Jewish state descended. But there were two favorable turnarounds amidst the tragedy. Number one, our covenant with HaKadosh Baruch Hu was sealed. He poured his wrath on stones and on structures, but we asserted and reconfirmed his love for us. And finally, there was a contraction of Judaism. The Beis HaMikdash was replaced by the Beis HaMedrash. A national identity was contracted into a cognitive, experiential study, a pursuit of the infinite through the books, those yellow pages that are saturated with Jewish history. And now it's our challenge with that tradition to maintain that love for Torah. And Baruch Hashem, there's more Torah being studied in today's world than at any point in the last 3,000 years since the first base of English. It's an incredible time to be be living. I'm not talking about the quality of Torah. I don't know if we'll be able to recreate Gedolim as we once did. But the spread of Torah? 70 years after the Holocaust, there are 90,000 people in a stadium in New York City celebrating the Dafiomi. Unheard of. Unimaginable. I want to conclude just with one final statement. Unrelated to the share, but I think equally important. That's all right? 900 years ago, the community of Yemen suffered a double tragedy. The Yemenite Jews faced the false Messiah, followed by a pogrom-inspired Islamic fundamentalist movement forcing them to convert. This was in the 12th century. 200 years before the Spanish Inquisition. It wasn't driven by Christianity, but it was driven by fanatic Muslims. And they were demoralized. They felt besieged. And the Rambam penned the famous communique known as Igeres Teman, a letter to the people of Teman, otherwise known as Petah Tikva, a window of hope from which the modern city Petah Tikva draws its name. It's actually in Tanakh, but Petah Tikva. 
The Rambam cited a verse in Isaiah 54. I'll recite the verse in English first. Any tool that's wielded against you will fail, and any tongue that rises to oppose you will be indicted. Any tool raised against you, any weapon will fail. And any tongue attacks you will be indicted. The Rambam interpreted these two verses, or these two clauses, as follows. What are the tools and weapons that are assailed against you? Weapons, military aggression, persecution, they will fail. All the wars, all the persecution, all discrimination will one day subside. Cold clay, life, any clay, any sword, any missile, any gun, will fail. What could that second clause refer to? Kol lashon takomi any tongue that rises against you in court. The Rambam interpreted it as Christian polemics or Islamic polemics. All those will try to debunk and repudiate Judaism and debate Judaism and disprove Judaism and denounce Judaism and defame Judaism and that. They'll all fail. Because the Rambam lived in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages, that was a real current threat that Jews faced. The great debate, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Judaism, Pizarro, that was really on their minds. They were being assailed in every corner. Is your religion authentic? Is your religion enduring? And he encouraged them, don't worry. The weapons will fail, and the tongues will be quiet. It's a good shot. But living in the 21st century, there's a different shot, one which is in some ways more literal. No one today is questioning our theology. It's passe, it's post-ideology. We live in a post-ideological world. No one's going to debate Judaism versus Christianity. If anything, most of the academic world rejects the entire world of religion. As being hocus pocus. I'll find great debates. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, who feels threatened or vulnerable? But their tongues are rising up against us. How are they rising us against us? They're not questioning our theology, they're questioning our morality. Child murderers, genocide, brutal, occupying armies, the endless, imbecilic, Warped, distorted, defaming, verbal atrocities that you have to face on a con- I feel bad for you. I really do. I'm five hours away from this mess. And you have to face it every time you turn on the television or you turn on the internet. Don't let it erode your conviction. Don't fall prey to it. That is your job in this country. We have our job and you have your job. We're facing the weapons, the first part of the passage. Your responsibility is to stand tall. We're our Kodesh Baruch Hu's people. We are moral. We continue to be moral. We are being assaulted. And just because an entire world is either intoxicated with nascent anti-Semitism or possibly intoxicated with moral relativism that assigns equal validity to both sides of an argument or some warp david goliath complex. I don't know what it is. I think that it's the fallout of democracy. I think that in 50 years we'll all look back and realize the price we pay for democracy. Because if everyone is an equal vote, then the presumption is everyone is an equal opinion. This is not true. When it comes to the moral sphere, in the political sphere, everyone is an equal vote. But in moral reckoning, 
You don't take every vote into account. You represent every sign of the picture. There are clear and sharp lines between good and evil. And we are clearly positioned on the moral side of this encounter. Your grandparents face a lot worse. They were exposed on a daily basis to this verbal assault. And they didn't have the state of Israel. And they didn't have Jewish pride. And they didn't have communal strength. There were individuals isolated in the wilderness of history. And they summoned the energy to defend what they knew was right. Against a chorus of naysayers and verbal assaulters. Be honest and be true to their legacy. And remind yourself on a daily basis of how warped and perverted. And just because it sounded from every news coverage and from every news station, at least in your heart and in the hearts of those around you, maintain your moral clarity. And then you're part of our defense system. And you're part of our people. And you're part of that puzzle. Hashem, we shouldn't need to remember those five things. And it should all be in your shine very quickly. And one thing I can tell you, I don't know how to process the last six weeks. I can guarantee you we're closer to Google than we were six weeks ago. I don't think anyone in this room has a shadow of a doubt. And we're much closer. I don't know how close we are, but it's good to feel closer. Have a great night, everyone. Much closer. I'd like to thank Ralph Carrigan for that hour and 20 minutes. It was a visceral journey that was part of that gula, I think, towards um, that day that you talked about. I want to just mention the CDs um, at the side of the room um, that are on sale. I think everybody's um, aware um, of the um, our good friend um, Esther Oster, who's um, there selling some CDs for a very uh, important cause. Um, I think we've got five or ten minutes for questions to Rabbi Tarragon, if that's all right with you. Okay. Um, so, can I open the floor to any questions for Rabbi Tarragon? Or maybe he's answered all our questions. <laughs> You're saying that um, Hashem took anger on stones, but a lot of people got killed as well, and a lot of people got exiled. Absolutely. And it's always the challenge when you historicize events that you may ignore personal human tragedies. So part of the way that we know what you mean? Part of the way that we process and deal with these large events and tragedies is putting them into historical perspective. Seeing the larger dynamics at work, how our history has continued. But that should never come at the cost of suffering and absorbing and sympathizing with the losses that we do have. And we always have to find that balance. I was very conscious of this. I put out a lot of shirim, I recorded a lot of shirim during the two weeks that these boys were thought to be kidnapped, thought to be alive, and I was very conscious every time I spoke, I tried to hit the historical note, what this means in the larger picture, what are the lessons, but at the very least, let's not overlook the fact that there are three mothers suffering, three parents suffering. But if you allow yourself only to be absorbed in 
the loss and you ignore the historical ramifications, and I think you lose the process. And that was September 11th. A friend of mine had a son who was in a, a yeshiva of a different ideology, not a Hezer type yeshiva, not a Dati Lomi national And three hours after the World Trade Center happened, my friend's son's rabbi, son of the yeshiva, gathered all the boys together and gave them a stirring indictment of the evils of capitalism. And that's why Wall Street was attacked, because capitalism is a scourge again. I told my friend, get your kid out of this yeshiva. Who let this Rebbe out of the cage? To dance on people's blood? It's so inhuman. Now, obviously, unfortunately, I say this with respect, but we're not here to smirk and laugh. The great people, the great people say a terrible thing, but it's not what the Rebbe said during that time. Whether you agree ideologically or not, when people are suffering, you don't point fingers, you don't play God, you don't assign blame. So, of course, you're right. There are people who die. And, and even the great miracles that happened last week before, unfortunately, the sad news we received today. Last week was a week of miracles, thousands of miracles. But there still was a man who died. So, man, so, so we always have to proceed as human beings, not in any way accepting or, or, or trivializing any loss of life, but also see the big picture. And that's part of people that go through bereaved moments, trying to balance artifacts. You're part of a national art, and the history will continue, and the people coming to Nakhon Alba, and that takes time the personal suffering. So, there are hundreds of thousands of people die begging to get to be, yes, but they're going to not work. The entire Jewish experience could have terminated. I think it's an ex- excellent question. Every time we address it through those means, it has to be in a balance. Um, my question is, um, a lot of us have a problem understanding the concept of opinion based on the Dutch. Even if we can appreciate the suffering and the loss of the destruction, but in terms of thinking about the re-establishment of a sacrificial system, it seems to be part of an ancient world which we can't really identify with. How can we kind of look forward to that? So the question was that so much of the Mikdash centered around ceremonial sacrifices of animals, and in the modern context, we have a very difficult time identifying it. Hence, it, it maybe buffers us from a deeper identification. So the issue itself was one of great debate. As you know, the Rambam felt that sacrifices would not be reinstated. The overwhelming majority of positions disagreed. And I alluded to this before. I think that we sometimes get trapped in our own conventions, and we deprive ourselves of healthy apocalyptic imagination. What I mean is as follows. Let me take your question over to a side, a less, a less dramatic question. We dive in every day, Basically, we're praying to replace democracy with a monarchy. Any takers? We value democracy. But democracy is not the ideal. It's the best form of government that we've been able to generate through human faculty, and we relish it, and we value it, and we protect it. We all know the ills and dangers of democracy, and we have to allow ourselves to dream and envision beyond human perfection, or whatever level of human perfection we achieve, and imagine a world refashioned by our Kodesh Baruch that supersedes our own accomplishments. I think healthy apocalyptic, dividing your mind into, let me give you a different example. 
I know every male here worked filling this morning, Shem, for 45 minutes. When the base on Mikdash comes, you'd still be wearing filling now. How would your life change if you wore filling every moment? A completely different landscape. So we're trapped in that fallen world that we try to perfect, and we have perfected, and we have to embrace. But we can't just assume that that's the ideal world. The only wor- the, the, the world that our imagination can conceive or can construct. So I can't answer your question, but I don't think anyone can, because I'm trapped in the same reality you are. I've been taught that animal sacrifices are bloody and offensive. I'm not a PETA supporter, don't worry. <laughs> Society for the Protection of Animal Rights, I'm not. But I'm trapped in the conventions. Now, what you have to be careful about is we have to operate within those conventions. Those of you who are old enough to remember Americana. Americana from the Jewish Defense League. So this was his card. That any Western value was really adulterating true Judaism and all these values of peace and people's rights and the Arabs should be dealt with in the traditional way, the same way that Moshe dealt with the... And we accept these values as long as we live in a pre-Messianic world. We try to integrate them in our own experiences. So I would not look kindly upon sacrifices today. But what happens in a world in which Hashem's presence is so overwhelmingly visible and so palpable that hearts turn? If I ask anyone in this room to wager a bet, do you think that 13 million Jews will one day be Orthodox? It's not, it doesn't look to be in the card. I don't want to read the tea leaves, but that's what we believe. So obviously there are events. Give Hashem a little credit. There are events that Kaddish Baruch Hu can introduce that intervene in our reality, reshape it, and provide a different one. I remember a couple of years ago, after the tsunami in Japan, it speaks to your question. I was interviewed in a radio station for a rabbinic voice. So I spent 20 minutes describing the suffering and the empathy. Obviously that comes from before you go on a consideration. But I said, I, I was intrigued to look at the Google Earth pictures of that island or that part of Japan before the tsunami and after the tsunami. And it was just eerie. The pre-tsunami satellite pictures of buildings and roads and the power lines. And, and how long does a tsunami take? 30 seconds? You completely shade the entire area. And it just reminds us that as believers apocalyptic events that completely alter our reality as we know it. Okay. Now, too much apocalyptic thought and escapist and is counterproductive. You can't hide in apocalyptic fantasy. But you can't deny that some of the prophecies... And there's... I'm sorry, do you know you, what's your name? Well, it's a great debate, for example, that lions and calves will get along in the end of the day. Some take this metaphorically, but some take this literally. So... Our reality is not the only reality, but it's our reality. And we have to process and succeed within our reality, but not deny the potential for a different reality to be introduced. And the same thing, I can't explain to you sacrifices, but I won't deny to you the possibility that we'll recognize the importance of sacrifices. Well, Courtney, a night there. We're going to have Mario over there in about five minutes. So if you could once again show your appreciation for our Thank you very, very much.